Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best fully functional GPS when you're out of service. Offline maps allow you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline, so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials, so it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me, and here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui Venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. I spent... Five hours teaching my nephew how to play cribbage. <laughs> You'd have to spend five hours teaching me because he's I don't six know years old. Yeah. That is not pleasant. <laughs> no, you know. But he was just like, I want to learn this. Everybody else is playing it because it was dumping rain the whole time. Yeah. And man, okay, ten and five. <laughs> ten and five. What's ten and five? <laughs> why, did, why did cribbage become the we're in a cabin we have nothing to do pastime. it just always has because been it's everybody the, it's the best two person card game out there that's why. really my, my old man you might as well run it turn the machine on machine's on Steve <laughs> in my old man it. in my old man's old age him and his friends were very into taking any kind of oddball item and drilling whatever hundreds of holes you need to drill into it. 120. To make a cribbage <laughs> scorecard. Yeah. So if, like, someone found an antler, right, you'd do that with it. If someone's like, look at this old bowling pin <laughs> at, a heart, at a yard sale, <laughs> you, they would bandsaw the bowling pin in half, and then one would take it home, and my dad would take his home, and they'd go up and drill 120 holes in it. Yeah. 120 holes in it, and they'd have a bowl, a, a bowling pin. Cribbage board. Yeah. Didn't yep. matter what. Yeah. Anything, you, I like that. That's fun. Anything that would accommodate 120 I know you're not holes. a card game enthusiast, and if either of you, if your brothers aren't either, 
Um, oh no, we played cards like a madman growing up. Yeah, but I've offered to to play with you uh, since we've known each other. I grew out of it. You grew out of it. Well, I, I just want to say no, that if, I play you, if there's queens. one of those laying around, I'd be honored oh. to take it and keep it, you know, alive. When and, and I play go on home, it. when I go home to visit my mom soon here, I will bring you back. Uh, I'll, pr- I'll probably bring you a bowling ball one, <laughs> bowling pin one, which I feel is still laying around. I'll definitely find some antler ones and I'll bring them to you. Nice. We played, we used to throw craps on an army blanket because that's how my dad did it in the army. We would, um, he'd like pin, he'd lay the blanket on the ground and pin it up the wall as the backboard. She said, when you're throwing craps in the army, it needs to be quiet. So you, it wouldn't make any noise. You threw the dice and it hit a wall, a wool blanket hanging on the wall and it'd be like silent craps. Um, we played a lot of poker. A lot of poker. And everybody had like a sock full of change. Mm-hmm. Go get your sock. <laughs> Dude, I could tell you like a very great story about one of those socks full of change. <laughs> if I couldn't do it on this show. Does it involve violence? <laughs> I was just going to ask that, Brody. No, if it was a violent story, I would it. absolutely tell a violent story. It's not Slack. a violent story. It's a sexy story. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh-huh. yeah. Joined today by John Muell. Who's been on the show how many times? Once? Twice? Twice, at, at least. least. twice. Yeah. yeah. He has a brand spickety new book out. Serious Face. Essays by John Muellum. Several of which pertain to the stuff we like to talk about. That's right. Because you, um, you, you have a few things you write about. One of the things you write about, I don't know if you describe it this way, but you write a lot about human relationships with nature, especially when they get a little, they go a little haywire. I think that's like right. how do you put it? I like to think of it as I like to write about people who are getting really confused <laughs> by animals. <laughs> you know? Because the there's lots of stories where a bunch of people are doing very confusing, nutty things, trying to accomplish something, and there's an animal right in the center of the story, and the animal can't tell its side of the story, so you just get to deal with all the people acting crazy. And something about that really Scratches an itch for me. Yeah, like if you could go up to a monk seal and say, what do you think about all this? You know what I think he'd say? I think he wouldn't know that it's going on. Absolutely not. <laughs> he'd be yeah. like, about what? Yeah. I would say that the animals always have no comment, you know? And that, in some ways, I think that that brings the craziness of people into higher relief. Oh, because they get to speak for it. Yeah, because if you Even have... They get to speak for it, and it turns out that it says many different things to them. <laughs> to many different people. And if you have a story where there's some kind of controversy among people, then you have to go around as a journalist and talk to all of those people and align their accounts and somehow make sense of all their different stories. But if one, the main character in the story is an animal, and they're not talking, then you can just show the nuttiness of people. Mm-hmm. It's a very pure way, I think, to show how dysfunctional we are as a species. Yeah. Is to show us kind of colliding up against some other species. Uh, I can't tell if I'm going to beat your ass in trivia. Are you staying for trivia? You're definitely going to beat my ass in trivia, without a doubt. No, I think that you're going <laughs> to... I don't know. Str- I, I think, think you're going to be a strong player. I think you're going to be a very strong player. I think you've already gotten in my head where I'm feeling like you're going to beat my ass at trivia. So he well, likes listen, to do that. I started listen, out strong. Listen, my game, my game is collapsed. Dude. Okay, well, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> my game is yeah, collapsed. Yeah. I started out strong. Um, we'll have already talked about this, but our trivia show has gone weekly. Um, it's a weekly release hosted by Spencer Newharth. 
I think you'll do good, but I think I'll beat you. Because here's the deal. You'll do good on all the geography, like history stuff you'll do good on. But there's going to be some like technical, there's going to be some technical archery question or something well, so that, I might, I... that I might be like, oh, I remember what that is. And uh-huh. you're just not going to know. I mean, am I the only guest you've ever had on the show who's never hunted? No. Okay. No. So I'm already at a disadvantage, I feel. You're of a very small few. No, that's not really true. Okay. As a casual listener to the show, I definitely feel like I'm, I'm not qualified to be here. But uh, we'll yeah. Make it, but that's going to come out in the trivia. But <laughs> the I'll point out to people that I know for a fact that you almost hunted. That's right. Because you got real curious about the deer in your yard. Well, you got me real <laughs> curious about the deer. I did go hunting once. Oh, you did? I, okay. We may have talked about this once. I did go hunting once, but we did not see an elk the whole time I was out there. And that sharpened my appreciation for hunting for sure. Where are you at with the deer in your yard right now? You haven't eaten one. Well, no. The Where I'm at with the deer in my yard is I spent a lot of the pandemic building a deer fence. <laughs> and it became like, you know, my my uh what's what like it was like my vietnam you know it was like me just <laughs> like in an intractable situation you know biting off more than i could chew but trying to protect your garden trying to protect my garden i mean mostly okay so it mostly started as i was really f- i started just got as really, a police action yes okay. <laughs> no i mean i was, was like creep so i had i had the last book i had come out came out on march 20th, 2020, I think. So oh. I had all this time blocked out. I was going to go on a big book tour. You know, it was going to be like a big deal. And then it all got crushed. And I was home doing Zoom second grade with my daughter, <laughs> just hating life. And I got real mad one day and I, I went out and there's, I live on Bainbridge Island. There's not much to do there. So I drove out of my driveway in a, in a huff and I went and I bought, I, I went to the garden center because that was like the only place you could go <laughs> to blow off some steam. And I impulse bought four little fruit trees. And then I got home and I realized the deer are going to tear these things apart. So I decided I would just build a fence around the little fruit trees. Yeah. And then I was like, well, why don't I just build a fence around everything? And that really spiraled out of control. So I built like, it's something like 600 feet of fence. And um, it took me, I mean, many ups and downs, psychological, nice as well as logistical. I think I did all right. You put For someone who'd po- never done it before. Like what, you put it in wooden posts? And- oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, okay. yeah. And then deer netting through some of the woods and stuff. Wow. So I finally finished in July of 2021. And I had an opening ceremony. To, for all the people who had helped me, I invited them. I gave some some remarks. I gave a little speech in front of the fence. We had like red, white, and blue bunting on the fence. We had a cake. We had a fence cake. And since then, I'm happy to report there's only been like one or two occasions when I've seen a deer inside the fence. And I think it's because my fence butts against my neighbor's fence and they're jumping over that fence. So mm-hmm. that'll be next summer's project. Mm-hmm. Could be. That's your, that's your Cambodia. That's my, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's the detente. Um, Cal's like real Vietnam. Yeah. It said the right thing. Um, uh, so that's the situation with the deer is that there, we've sort of reached an understanding, I think. Um, that is becoming, uh, it's, it's zeitgeisty in a way, because that's becoming a thing, um, where I grew up is they are taking orchards um, and, I mean, hundreds of acres of orchard and building exclosures. Oh, really? Which was just not a thing as a kid. And I think this is going to have, we're talking about major reductions in deer habitat in that instead of trying to protect individual saplings, these orchards uh, around my buddy Matt's place, there are a bunch of them now, and they're doing it with state funding, like state offsets. 
because it's this pissing match about it's the state's deer, right? They're building these deer-proof fence around like several hundred acre farms and being like, there are no deer on this chunk of land anymore. Yeah, that's what I did with my not several hundred acres. Yeah, that, that yeah. bums me out. Yeah. That you did that? Well, I left half the property. You should write an article about that. I left half the property. The deer can go oh, okay. there. They right. just, you know. That bums me out. Why does it bum you out? You, you did the same thing with your garden. No, I didn't do my yard. I did my garden. He didn't do his. He did his yard. I did about, it's probably like two and a half acres. Three, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a sizable fence. That's different. Yeah. And you, what do you, do you think let, the do deer let birds come in there? No, as soon as I see a bird, I go check. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but the, you know, the coyotes still come through. They still come in because the, the wooden panels of the fence, the openings are fairly large. And Actually, coyotes. we built the fence, then we got a dog. The dog goes right through the fence. That was dumb. You know, gotcha. get the dog first, then build the fence. But yeah, the deer, you know, there's plenty of room for the deer on Bainbridge. I'm not worried about them. John joined us on episode 98 and 266. Okay. Third time's a charm. Corinne calls you a brilliant writer. Thank you, Corinne. <laughs> I love this book. <laughs> um, okay, we're going to get into all that. Oh, we just we just reminded everybody that the podcast is now weekly. Is there anything in here in, I think to say about that? Wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, etc. But you don't have to subscribe to like another no, no, no. show. It, fee- it, it serves on this feed. You don't need to do shit. Right. So stay if you are if you have not subscribed to the Meat Eater podcast feed on the various platforms that you listen on, please subscribe. And trivia will just slide in. On my phone, I have a little thing in my notes. On my phone, I have a thing called podcast, and I just write down things that I feel like I should talk about on the show. Mm-hmm. I was in the Fort Myer, Florida airport, and there was two. I was like by two girls that sort of like ran, knew each other, and ran into each other unexpectedly. Love when that happens. One of them said, and this is a quote: "Where you headed?" End quote. Quote to Durango to stay in a yurt. I had pointed out that like yurts, hipsters were they very hipsterish? <laughs> like the yurts are like I feel that yurts are very left wing, and it's like staying in a yurt has become like a thing in and of itself. You would never yes. say I'm going to Durango to stay in a tent. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? It's, You'd be like I'm going to Durango to stay in a camper. It's like a mark. No, of, it's like, no but it's I'm like going a mark camping. Of, it's like you're you defining yeah. yourself. You know, you're attaching yourself to that type of person who goes around and stays in yurts. Another thing in my notes here, I got to hit a couple of these things. And does this person <laughs> even know that yurt is a ubiquitous term that I didn't encloses a lot of different structures? Like, um, yeah, I didn't. I didn't interview I didn't her. That. John would have been in there interviewing. <laughs> but no, I didn't even know that. Uh, my buddy Ron, he's telling me about his pet crow as a kid. Like Seth had a crow and Ronnie had a crow and he, when he was little, he got it out of the cemetery. Him and his buddies each took one out, climbed up and got him out of a nest and he raised it up and the crow would like to go out with him hunting other birds. He was little. He had a pellet gun and he'd shoot a bird. Okay. And the crow would peck its eyes out. And then the crow would eat the bird's liver. And I knew that much, but I didn't know this. One day, Ronnie and this crow were out, and Ronnie dropped a pellet while he was loading his pellet gun. The crow ate it, and 
died right in front of him. <laughs> oh, man. That's some live by the sword, die by the sword shit right there. Last one. Cal, I had a dream in, w- in which you said, and this is the greatest line you've ever said, you said that you... Hold on, in your dream? <laughs> in the Cal dream. Cal said this to me in a dream. This, this okay. is in a dream state. So the, told only, me, the only good thing Cal has said diary. is something that's the you, best thing. from your version of Cal <laughs> right. in your imagination. It's you using Cal as like a ventriloquist dummy in your sleep. He, exactly. said, he said he's so tired that his nose hairs are hanging straight down. <laughs> <laughs> that's very Cal like appropriate. That, like very that tired. Dream, like Steve. that so tired your nose hairs lost their curl. <laughs> You know that type of <laughs> that type of tired. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that should be on a shirt. Oh, tune in right now because tomorrow, uh, tune in to the Meat Eater YouTube channel. Go on YouTube, subscribe to Meat Eater, and you'll see uh, our very own uh, Yanis Butelis and Kevin Gillespie preparing a dish with Yanni's special bighorn ram. Mm-hmm. Yanni can't remember what it was. It was delicious. I have all the ingredients to make more of it. I'm trying to find masala. It right no, it wasn't masala. I feel like I heard like vindaloo, like something that's spicy. But we're losing a lot of listeners. Pakora, <laughs> they're not listening to this. Uh, we just had uh, Dustin Huff, shooter of the Huff Buck. So w- he was on the show. If you were listening, um, Dustin Huff from Indiana. Killed a giant buck. Realized pretty quickly that it must be the biggest buck ever killed in Indiana. Turns out it was the biggest typical whitetail ever killed in the USA. As a joke, kind of as a joke, he was giving away so much information about where the buck was that kind of as a joke, we were bleeping out names of surrounding landowners. Doug wrote in. Doug Dern, our beloved Doug Dern, bubbly Doug wrote in, the bleeping of the names of the landowners near where this guy killed that big giant buck is funny and adds to the story in a great and humorous way, but it makes me think of two things. One, that buck is dead. The odds of another like him being around is unlikely. So that's chasing a ghost. This from a man that killed the standard, which remains, he was shocked when he found it. Killed it, and never another one, right? But a lot of nice bucks nice in bucks. the exact same spot. Yeah, that's true. You know? Like maybe that's like not like... maybe the not the freak, <laughs> but nice bucks, right? Right. His second comment. It reminds me. This is Doug talking again. It reminds me of what the wise and beautiful Pat Durkin said to me when I brought up my concerns about drawing hunters from out of the area to the Casanova Northeast Richland County by saying where I killed the standard in an article he was writing for the national publication, Quality Whitetails. He goes on to say, I'm paraphrasing Pat. In my experience, so this is, this is him paraphrasing Pat. Durkin says, in my experience, people from outside the area don't become a problem. It's the locals that were and are the problem, and they already know all about the big deer on your place and the area. Doug then goes on to say, my experience is that Pat was spot on with that assessment. Dustin Huff pointed out in the podcast episode, this is me talking, not Pat or Doug. Dustin Huff pointed out in the podcast episode that since that, that he killed this big giant buck, 
they have found a few bucks dead with their heads cut off. Decapitated. Um, and he was talking about that. And he was attributing it to people coming to that area now with big buck fever. Doug says, I guarantee you the bucks found dead with the heads cut off after this fella killed that big giant buck was the work of locals, not some poachers drawn to the area about hearing about this BGB. And three, if you got kids around, plug their ears. And three, this is Doug talking, when I heard he killed it with a crossbow, I said, fuck yeah. Uh, Yanni, do this. He's also he's also really happy that a mostly casual hunter killed that deer. Yeah, yeah. I was too. I was happy about that. Yeah, it's kind of like the. I don't want to say it was the. Is the focus of the interview? Yanni, give everybody the story about bighorn sheep tags in New Mexico. This is interesting. This is a trend that I don't think is going away. I'm not prepared for this, but I'll give it a go. What the hell were you doing? When you get she sent you the stuff. You don't study this all and do all ancillary research and. Yeah, I, I do. What I, <laughs> I do what I can. <laughs> I do what I can. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just pictured you up all night, like reading, like uh-huh. prior yeah. findings. So <laughs> I, I, I see how it goes. So that way, when Steve doesn't do what he just suggested, I do. He can just throw hey, it. I'm off seeing to me. this for the, I'm seeing this for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it sounds like there's some folks that want locals in New Mexico want to ha- have more opportunities to hunt bighorn sheep in their own state. And one of the options they're throwing around to figure that out is to um, take away all of the bighorn sheep tags that are available to non-residents. There's only seven permits available for non-residents in New Mexico. Um, but uh, that's an idea getting thrown around, and it's going to be heard by, I don't know, some you know New Mexican game and fish, the commission and whatnot. A f- person wrote in, well, I was going to hit this part. Oh, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I, mean, I was just going to, we were going to tag team the story. Steve, Steve read up as I was giving you that intro. <laughs> so here's a perspective on it. Residents of New Mexico would be like, it doesn't make sense that I have to try to get a sheep tag my whole life and never get one. And it's state-owned wildlife. And I'm, I'm here in the state. And, and then when they give a ram tag out, it's some hoser from wherever. Yeah. Some hoser from Minnesota. From meat eater. Yeah. Some hoser from <laughs> Minnesota draws the sheep tag. And, and this, you know, Yanni's a non-resident bighorn hunter because he mm-hmm. he used to live in Colorado, moved away, drew a tag, so now here's an example of, you know, he should have like by some people's perspective, um, he should have when he moved away, that should have been the end of him trying to get a tag there because he doesn't live there. This guy points this out. This is a, a fella writes in from Texas. Um, never hunted bighorns. As a Texas resident, he has. We'll just say he has zero chance because they give out a tag. I think Texas does one. Like, don't they do one general draw tag a year in Texas? I think it's something like that. It's one or two. Yeah, yeah. it's like, there's like a tag in Texas. So this is never going to happen for me. Yet, he's a supporter of the Wild Sheep Foundation because he dreams of someday hunting a ram. If this trend were to catch on and continue, um... He doesn't see, in his view, residents, you know, aspiring sheep hunters from outside of New Mexico are going to have zero incentive to 
give two shits about what's going on with sheep or sheep in New Mexico. If this were to become a trend, the guy in Florida who's a big wild sheep supporter, but the Western states all say like no non-residents. What is that? What are the implications for that? His relationship to sheep and sheep conservation. Good question. Yeah, the the sheep thing is an amazing deal, right? You go to Wild Sheep Foundation, which raises an unbelievable amount of cash at their annual uh, banquet, sheep show. And if you really want to do the math, it is the tiniest majority or tiniest minority of people in that room have killed the greatest majority of sheep. Oh, huh. And the vast majority of people there at this point, we'll likely never draw a sheep tag, but they're coughing up cash too. Yeah. What's that, what's that sort of like club they have? The less than one is the, so there's multiple clubs in there, but there's the less than one club, which is if you have never drawn a sheep tag, or I'm sorry, you've never successfully harvested a sheep, then you can pay some cash to uh, ideally up your odds for a series of drawings that uh, you must be present to win, uh, which is pretty cool. I drew a, a sheep tag. I remember, but it was in the wrong continent. <laughs> it was the, the wrong you, continent. Did you the... ever go? No. No, the <laughs> outfitter was like, oh, God, you're not 70. And, and they kind of like refused to call me back. And what? I got a hold of sheep, wild sheep. And I was like, hey, you guys paid a lot of money for this hunt. This isn't working out. And it just kind of died from there. Yeah. And they're like, well, you know, you could sell that uh, hunt. And I said, so this outfitter that I'm having all sorts of good luck with, you want me to sell Promote the hunt him. to somebody else? I'm like, I don't want to go on it. Why would I sell it to somebody? I think you're right, though, Steve, that states are going to continue to clamp down on the number of like once in a lifetime tags available to non residents. I'm pretty sure Wyoming's. Yeah, working something. I know Wyoming is working hard on behalf of its residents. When we were talking about the like recent issues around the you know the conversation around lead non lead, and I all I said I said one day on this same digital radio program, I said uh, that conversation ain't going away, and that got people mad to observe that a conversation ain't going away. This conversation it's not ain't going, going away. <laughs> but no. one one thing that's confusing to me is from the Wild Sheep's the Wild Sheep Foundation's website. Even though they seemed well, I I don't know what their position is, but at the at the end of their note it says, "Bottom line: This discussion over New Mexico bighorn sheep would be dramatically different if it were not for the decades of support brought by non-resident hunters that have significantly contributed to successfully growing the state's sheep population." The discussion would be, why don't we have more sheep? Real conservation work is growing the pie for everyone, not fighting over the slice, yep. the slices. And, and so, to point out, this is a proposal too. This is not right. in law. So right. then I, so that kind of seems to be in the the spirit of what the listener is for sure. How they're thinking but about you have things, this but argument of like, well, they're paying more money. Mm-hmm. You guys should like that. And then you get into this whole other world of auction tags and governor's tags. And there's like, oh, okay. well, these people mm-hmm. are paying the most money. Right. Okay. So got should it. we give them more tags? Got it. Sure. And then got you got it. residents that are like, what the hell? Right. Yeah. Got and, it. Okay. and, you know, it's like when you used to be able, what did prior, 
in the 90s here in Montana, what were your special draw applications? What was the cost prior to the big bump up to 200 and it was, some dollars? I, I know that non, for non-residents, it was 600 bucks a pop. And I think for residents, it was like 20 bucks a pop or four, sub 20. Wow. Not more a, than 20. 17, something yeah, like it that. Sticks in my head. I, yeah. I keep thinking like 14, 20. I don't know yeah. what it was, but it was, it was. That's so yeah. low. Uh, oh, no, 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 I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I think it was 75 bucks. What's no, that? I don't know what I'm talking anyway, about. Anyway, <laughs> when that jumped. Not a sh- at, how about not a shitload? Cal? Not a shitload would be great. <laughs> to what most people would consider a shitload. When that jump occurred here, I, I can't tell you how many people were like, well, that prices me out of the game. Which right. is weird because it's a, a once in a lifetime tag. Like in Colorado, residents kick in like 250, 300 for once in a lifetime tags, and it's 10 times that for a non resident. But it's still like Montana's cheap for yeah. sheep, moose, it is. tags. It is, but it's, it's, you know, we, we talk about it all the time. It's like that. What are you getting for that cost at the pump? It's like, well, I, do burn a lot of gas, but I go here and I do all this stuff and it makes me super happy. But a lot of people are like, I'm not driving. Here's a little tidbit some people might appreciate. Uh, different states that do like non-resident tag draws, they run different programs where in some states you have to prepay. I don't know what it is now, but it used to be in Montana. You had to prepay for any tag that you applied for. So if you applied for moose, sheep, and goat as a non-resident, you had to send a cashier's check. I think it was 800 bucks a piece because you had to send a cashier's check, I think, for $2,400 if you were going to do all three. Oh, I see. So they really... And then because the problem they would run into is people would apply for stuff they had no way of paying for. And then you do the draw, and then you got all these, these people that then they can wait all these months before they buy the tag. They never come up with the money. So then they're like, okay, you got to pay up front. Some states do it where you submit a credit card number. And they're like, you need to make sure that credit card is active and that your credit card company is aware that there could be a ding. Because if that credit card is rejected, we go to the next name. And so they do their draw. It spits out names. They run the credit card. If that credit card has any problem, it's on to the next name. And I've heard from people over the years who, like, for whatever reason, had over, I don't know, didn't pay, overdrawn, and missed their chance because their credit card got no second chance. It's like when that thing goes, it goes. And the I remember uh, when Chris Denham used to do from Western uh, Hunter, when he used to do tag draw stuff, he said, I keep a credit card only for this purpose. <laughs> And I know that there's no problem with that credit is, card. There's uh, nothing on it. <laughs> Does he make like $10 charges, like, you know, soda pop at the gas station? Just to station. make sure like everything's yeah, cool, pays right? pays that early and on time. So it's, yeah. uh, and I heard someone once say that um, the reason states made you prepay is they're making all this money on interest. And so they like to have this two months where they're holding hundreds or millions of dollars. And oh. someone said, man, <laughs> when you... Oh. the in, Someone said the interest... If you, if you think about the time, the interest wouldn't pay for the return postage to send that person's <laughs> check back, not counting like the banking fees and all that for how long they're actually holding this pile of money. Yeah, that's why they all went digital now is because they were losing money with the amount well, for what it costs to deal with the um, processing 
of the checks and then and then mailing back refunds, et cetera. Very costly. You want to watch this transition. You ready? I'm ready. Speaking Bring of money. <laughs> nice one. A guy, um, <laughs> Tam Van Tron, is a licensed commercial fisherman in the region of San Francisco, California. He goes out into a protected marine preserve at the Farallon Islands, sets 92 traps in the marine preserve, the Farallon Island Marine Preserve, where he's not, you dasn't set your traps there. Sets 92 traps, catches nearly 300 dungies. Closer Dun- to 250, crabs. 260. Okay. 260 Dungeness crabs in those traps. Dungeness crab right now is going for a, a, a dead middle price. So we're, we're assuming like, you know, it's a varied price. We're saying it's about eleven ninety five a pound. Okay. A middle of the road Dungeness crab weight is two pounds. Is this all your math, Grin? Uh no, this was a podcast listener. But I, I oh, think okay. I've I think I bought Dungeness Crab for like twelve ninety nine before. But it, I, you I know, spent some time right. in San Jose and um you know what's funny? What? Oh no, we were eating shrimp last night, but I gave away a bag of Dungeness Crab last night and I realized I gave away probably yeah, twenty two bucks for the Dungeons last night. Ugh. But um <laughs> uh no, I no, last night I gave away twenty four dollars for the Dungeness Crab. Uh so I, I remember buying it when it would come in, and I remember buying it that you could buy a Dungeness crab for seven dollars. Oh, huh! In California, I that's like okay. live yeah. crab, right, probably right, coming right, right yeah, off the boat. Yeah, you know, yeah, I used to buy it because yeah. I liked it. Uh, so this guy has seven thousand dollars worth of illegally caught crab, more or less. Yeah, more or less. This is round, rounding like, off yeah, figures. Yeah. The fine for doing such, the fine. Million bucks. Fair, excessive. I think that the rub is that he was in, not that he like overcapped in an area he was supposed to be in. It's like intentionally went to a marine preserve. Oh, he's claiming that he didn't know the waters were closed. Come on. According to the article. Right. And then Come they and then on. they also said, Don't touch your traps, don't retrieve anything. Don't move them, nothing, leave them alone. And after he was told this by the authorities, the authorities did find that some traps were. Yeah, they were pulling traps and letting crabs go, and they knew where they all were. And while they're pulling them, they realized that two dozen were missing. I wonder why they were doing that, just to kind of gate, estimate how many crabs could have been caught. That wasn't really explained in the article. They probably wanted to seize them all, I would imagine. Can seize we get that broken down what? to a... The traps. Well, yeah, man. No, I, but I they think... were leaving them, like pulling traps, throwing the crabs back, and then leaving them in the water. Yeah, leaving but, what in the water? Like the crabs. traps. Let's say you oh, get pulled over by the it. cops for a DUI, right? Yeah. Then I go, okay, this is the thing. You're Yeah, okay. Now go park your vehicle, and we'll take you to jail. That's what's happening here, right? They're like, you stay away from all this stuff. Because you you can no longer fish. That's the situation that you're in, and then they they got to go go deal with it. I don't think there's much like a yeah. Like thing. they come out. Here's all of his traps. They say you're in restrictive waters. Don't mess with the traps. We're gonna pull up traps. Count how many right. crabs you caught, and then they're not putting the traps back down. Mm. 
the area is closed because of whale migrations. It's not closed as like a crabbing protection area. Uh, anyways, in 2020, California, um, the Dungeness crab industry uh, drove $30 million in revenue. $1 million fine? Can How we much break is that, that down per mm-hmm. crab? What mm-hmm. is so fine? Mm-hmm. A million dollars per Someone how many pounds good of crabs? Do it. Let's see. Be one million divided by two sixty. That's like going to be more than I like don't know. Caviar. Hey, have anything we talked about? Strike your fancy. Can you see any big features about anything we've talked uh, about? Three thousand eight hundred forty-six bucks per pound. Per yeah. Per, no, no, per no, no. Crab. Per, per crab. Per crab. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside. Planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing. Taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, We got serious about life insurance, and man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money. And provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So, when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out, there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized I didn't drink anything all day, and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, 
plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick. It's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Now, I'm going to titillate folks with something. Uh, they, in big game poaching, a lot of states, I think this is more and more common all the time, in big game poaching, a lot of states, uh, they do a thing where they have to value the wildlife. Are you familiar with this? And then if you, like, for instance, if you kill, like, a doe whitetail, they're going to assign a value to that doe whitetail, and it's going to be, like, a modest value. If you were to kill, like, the huffbuck, like the biggest typical whitetail ever killed, right, in Indiana, and you poach that, they're going to assign a very different value to that deer. And they're going to look at, like, what its market value would be. Like, what would some 200-inch... They have a formula. They have a math formula for it. What would some 200-inch whitetail cost someone to go shoot it in a high fence operation? And you'd be like, your deer, that whitetail doe is worth 100 bucks, 200 bucks. The deer you shot's worth, we're going to say that's worth $55,000. But this is... This is, cr- this is crabs. Per crab? <laughs> I mean, I've got a transition, but then I also wanted to ask John something before we go transition, ahead. but... He's not interested in any of this. He just told me. The- <laughs> <laughs> I tell you that. He doesn't care eyes. what the crabs think. But I, I mean, if we, <laughs> if we transition to his uh, monk seal story, there are all kinds of numbers listed for like rewards given to people who have uh, information on a That's you right. know, killed animal. You have a whole list. Well, I but forget, I think, yeah. yeah, but I think too, you're dealing with two separate things, right? Because you're dealing with the value of the wildlife, but also it's penalizing, right? It's a deterrent, mm-hmm. right? To mm-hmm. say, this guy went out there, he's going to spend a million dollars now for his mistake. That's a deterrent. That's not because they can claim he did a million dollars worth of damage, right? Yeah. So, and the rewards, to my knowledge, are often put up not by the government, but by like, Humane society. These are like for killings, you know, like right. um, not not hunting violations. Assassinations, as assassinations. Like I like to call them assassinations. <laughs> We're not talking about hunting violations. We're talking about you know right. someone you know wrenching the head off a pelican because they of, yeah, yeah I'm pretty, frustrated. I'm pretty sure boat. over in Idaho, like that, there's a group that pays bounties, you know, to to uh, to trappers and to wolf hunters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there. a private org that kicks in money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's pretty. But cool. you got to be a member. You sign up ahead of time? Yeah. It's like joining a turkey derby? <laughs> I think so, yeah. I, I do like to see a fine, though, that seems like more than less, because I always feel like when I hear about wildlife uh, fines given out for, you know, wildlife crimes or public land sort of infractions or whatever. Yeah, you're I'm, often blown I'm always away like, by like... Really? Well, if that's all it costs, let's all go and do it. And when we get caught, we'll just pay the fine and keep on doing it. You well, know, I sometimes because feel that when you're reading about a poaching thing, and then you you know, it's like this elaborate, premeditated deal, and you know, and, and uh, it winds up being like like even more like people are selling stuff, you know, and it winds up being not 
Well, this this was also a commercial fishing violation, which I'm sure factored into that fine too. It's not like some recreational fisherman went out and was over the limit for Should be a higher standard of regulation. If you want to talk about monk seals, last summer- Well, we're going to talk about them big time. (laughs) Well, I'm going to start it right now then. Last summer, you had a woman- You you got to set the whole thing up, man. (laughs) Well, can I give you this little anecdote and then gonna, we can this, circle is this back? Like a, this is this right is like on a topic. Teaser? This is right on oh, okay, topic. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Last, I'll start. Last summer, so that <laughs> sounds like a natural transition. Last summer, you had a woman, I think from Louisiana, who was on in Hawaii and was, you know, there's a monk seal hauled out on the beach and she filmed herself going and touching the monk seal, $50,000 fine for that. No, the, the video went viral, and I think that's all deterrence. She sounds you know? like a cat lady. <laughs> she did not. She did not cause fifty thousand dollars. Did she ever actually pay it? That I do not know. You never hear these things after the fact, right? But um, but that was the fine they level on her last huh. year. Did her lawyer get away down? You don't know what happened. I have no idea what happened. But it was that. levied against her. I mean, that's an Endangered Species Act violation, right? That's harassment, quote unquote. Touch is defined by the law. Yeah. So, and that's why they have they have seal exclusion zones. Where they have volunteers in you're Hawaii. Way, you're getting way ahead of yourself. Who come? <laughs> <laughs> Here's what I want you Back to me up, Steve. Back me up. Back me where you I want to get, because this is fascinating. <laughs> okay. But I want to get to this. Um, in your new book, Serious Face, is a, what's that one called about the monk seals? I can't uh, believe this is happening. Yeah. Can you even believe this is happening? Can you even believe this is happening? And it tells the story of the, it's kind of an endangered species story. It's like a like a CSI endangered species of um, targeted intentional targeted killings of an endangered species. That's right. I call them assassinations. You call them assassinations. You want to fight about that? We well, can I want to fight that. about it yeah. because when yeah. when a hunter shot pedals the bear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So just there was a bear in New Jersey. He's just itching to get right back Listen, to that. There's a, <laughs> picked up recap, right where we left recap. off in there was, 2020. There was a bear in Pen, there was a bear in New Jersey uh-huh. that had had some deformity at birth. People debate whether it had a deformity at birth or it had been injured, but it would its its front feet weren't very functional and it would spend a lot of time walking around on its back feet. Some guy during the bear season um, I don't know if anyone's. We should try to get him on the show, but he's probably not talking. So, well, he's never been identified. But is he talking? Is he doing interviews? No, the the hunter has never been identified. There was a lot of we, everyone we, thought we it was this one now. guy, and he started receiving death threats. But I think it's pretty clear it wasn't actually him. Well, here's the deal. Yeah, um, he would get a sympathetic audience. I'm sure he with would. Us. So if he's and out, I, there, w- he I don't should. have anything. I would want. I, I would. I would love. Like the first question, I would be like, Did you? See it coming, walking on its back feet, and if so, did you wonder what it was doing? Did you know there was a bear hereabouts that walks on his back feet and has the name Petals? Or would he say, I had no idea, dude. It was on its all four feet when I saw it. I had no idea about any of this. It was just, right? But when when Petals was killed, Mm -hmm. it was billed that he had been assassinated. Was it now? Yes, dude, and I could we could find the article. Okay. All right, I did not say that when okay. I wrote and then my when obituary you read, for pedals. You wrote an obit. You were doing a recap of like important deaths throughout the year. Yeah, and you did a thing about because you're interested in when wildlife makes people nuts. Mm-hmm. You recap the pedals story. I don't remember you using assassinated in it, but then 
in talking about the killing of monk seals by Hawaiians, you said, I, you, you say, I struggle to find the right word for what it is. And you say, it's like an assassination. And I wanted to take, I wanted to be like, oh, come on. But then I'm like, no, because it is a political. Yes. Right? Like assassination is like a, it's a, a political killing. It's a statement. It's yeah, the golden and, spruce. And it's, to achieve a, it's to achieve a goal, I would say. I mean, I haven't looked Send up assassination. No, yeah, I think it, it does. And it's a statement. Yeah. Right? It's meant to be perceived in political terms. Yep. I yeah, think that, that's... You guys are really good, because I just looked it up on Merriam-Webster, and it says, murder by sudden or secret attack, often for political reasons. So in that way, in the story you're going to tell, um, I think it's... Does it say people? Or doesn't even specify who's doing well. Um, it, the it, it's it was comma the act or an instance of an assa- of assassinating someone such as a prominent political leader. Uh, but that's why I'm an innovative writer. Steve. I, was, I was applying <laughs> this. I mean, that's the beauty of what I'm doing in that piece is I'm applying that. You know, I'm I'm seeing it for what it is. Is that we have built up such a political controversy over this species, this other species that we can only really understand it's killing mm. in political terms, and which this is, is crazy, right? It's crazy to say that. I, I'm not, that's what I'm acknowledging is it's crazy to think that a marine mammal can be assassinated. But when you see the facts, that's exactly what's been going on in a way. I decided where I want you to start. To there's start. a okay. tinge of anthropomorphization there too. Oh, there's sure. more than a tinge. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I'm yeah. just going to back up for a hot second. A lot of the uh, headlines that I'm seeing just say killed from like Washington Post, et cetera, just says killed. In regard but, to pedals? Mm-hmm. In, in regard to pedals. But I see it, the Newsweek, oh God, Newsweek is infamous for their like beheaded elk headline. Oh, you know, um, can I tell John yeah. this real quick? Yep, please. In Rocky Mountain National Park, there's a huge bull and it died. They think it got killed by, uh, what did it get killed by? Mountain lion. It got killed by a mountain bank, lion. Yeah. And so some guy took its head mm-hmm. and the headline was... um. <laughs> That it was, they don't say like the like dive something else. Elk, like. Famous elk decapitated. No, beheaded. No, famous elk beheaded, beheaded in Rocky Mountain National Park. And you're like, oh, that's weird. Like someone walked up to it with a broadsword. Like a jihadist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, uh, no, it died. And then someone like took the head home. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but the Newsweek headline says the, the shameful slaughter of Petals the Bear. Corinne, if you want to make a cash bet, mm-hmm. that word was used. It was used in the post, not the post. It was used in like one of those digital Huff Post. Just you go ahead and follow that up up on that. Okay. Um, here's where I want you to start the Monk Seal story. Okay. I want you to start the Monk Seal story 1,500 years ago. Sure. 1,500 <laughs> years ago. Look how ago. good this guy Look how good this guy is. He's like, <laughs> no problem. It was a Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, that's when, so that's when Polynesians reach Hawaii, right? And everything ecologically starts to change. And so you had monk seals, which are, we all know what monk seals are. They're giant ass seals. Yeah, how, you know, I wouldn't say we all know. Come on. Okay. Yeah, how big? A little bit. I think they're about 800, 900 pounds. That's full, what blows weight. my mind. Yeah. When we get to the part about the kid that killed one with a rock. Yeah. 800 yeah. pounds. Yeah. Oh, they're so cute. Yeah. But they're, you know, they're sort of defenseless, right? They're not meant to. <laughs> so they, they spend a lot of time. We'll get back to 1,500 years ago. But, mm. I, well, 1,500 years ago, they also <laughs> spent a lot of time, <laughs> you know, they'd swim around, they're eating octopus, they're eating stuff, turning over rocks, and then they come out on the beach and they lay there for hours just digesting. Hauled out. Hauled out, fully out of the water on the beach. 
and they'll spend hours and hours like that. And they're native to the They're islands. native to the islands. Wow. Well, and so, well, well, no, they are. They well, are. Yeah. You'll get to that. Yeah. But, so, uh, once the Polynesians come, it's pretty fast, it seems, that the monk seals uh, disappear, at least from the main Hawaiian islands, right? Mm-hmm. They, they probably have retreated, like, up into the leeward islands, you know, the, the like, frigate shoals, all the ones that we don't really talk about when we talk about Hawaii, the little archipelago that's off to the west toward Fiji. And that's where they stay, right? So then you fast forward uh, to... You know what I think a thing that people do that annoys me a little bit, and you just did it? What? Bring it, Steve. Bring it. We show up to this podcast. There's this thing thing people say where they're like, you know, there used to be a lot of elk in the Great Plains. Uh Okay. There's this idea that that they retreated from the Great Plains and went into the mountains. Okay. What I think happened is they were in the mountains, they were on the Great Plains, and now they're gone from the Great Plains. That's absolutely true. So I don't think that these monk seals moved there. I think they were eliminated from parts of their range and remained... In other parts. You're, so you're I, saying the word retreat implies that there was a conscious group decision? Like a movement, yeah, yeah. rather than they were like killed off here, but not here. You're absolutely right. I mean, that's Maybe. the Monk Seal story. I mean, okay. no, I think that's, we know that. And thank you for- I didn't mean annoyed call. me. I don't want to come in hot. No, you're, you're, you know, you're very particular <laughs> about language. I appreciate it. So thank you. So they remained- in the Leeward Islands. Which I didn't know were a thing till I Yeah, I didn't your... know either. I've got oh, to be really? honest. I mean, I knew well, they I were there. From you. I knew they were there. I didn't know that we call them Hawaii. I didn't know that no, yeah, they were that's quote, a, unquote, yeah, Hawaii. I had no Islands. idea that yeah. that was like part yeah. of it. Oh. And, um, and then what started happening was, so basically then in 1976, so that's three years after, you know, fast forward a, a, a thousand years and change. And the three <laughs> years after the Endangered Species Act is passed um, in 1976, the federal government protects the monk seals. They are at that time, I believe, the most endangered um, marine mammal in terms of their numbers. And like, what was the sub a thousand? Like well, oh, absolutely. Sub a thousand, yeah. Like I think in the, like the low hundreds, like okay. maybe two hundred or so. I don't know at that moment how many there were. And they launched this project that, even at this point, I think is still projected to take forty-five years and close to four hundred million dollars to recover the species, according to the government's plan. And at first, nothing's happening. And then slowly, like starting in the, you know, 90s, mid 90s or so, the monk seals start to appear in the main Hawaiian islands, mostly in Kauai, because that's the, you know, the westernmost island. And people who have grown up in Hawaii, whose families have been there for generations, have never seen monk seals, start to see monk seals. You know, they're out fishing or whatever, they see monk seals taking their fish, scaring away their fish. And... uh 800, an 800 pound fish eater. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But the tiny cherubic little face with whiskers. Very beautiful little face. Just adorable. Cute as a button. (laughs) Most biologists would describe. (laughs) Very very cute face. Really kind of (laughs) disgusting, blubbery body, you know, just with that cute little button face attached to it. Yeah. It's like a pillow with a face. Yeah. Yeah. Not only had they, not only had native wines not seen them, but the, the animals must have disappeared so quickly upon colonization that they point out that they don't have a word for them. But you could also, you didn't, I don't know if you talked about this in your book, but you could also argue that there was, but in the 800 years or whatever of non-use, it hasn't needed to be carried on. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, and the, and the federal government, so I mean, a lot of what I'm writing about in that, in that piece is that just the complete breakdown, like the, the bungling breakdown of communication between the government 
and the people because you right you have you have native hawaiian saying what is this thing you know we don't <laughs> and it's getting in our way you're giving it all this money meanwhile you're the same government that stole our land right and we don't get anything from you right yeah. so there's a lot of resentment toward this animal and they say, and we don't even have a word for it. It's not in any chance. It's not in any, there's no, you know, carvings of it, anything. And the government does some research and they say, well, we think it's this, this word, which I think translates to something like dog running Let in water. Let us tell you. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that doesn't go over too well, you know. So dog this running whole, on water? Dog, I think that's the, the translation, yeah. And so, so that goes on, you know, there's about a decade of that of that kind of intractable conflict by the time I show up in Hawaii. Tell about the protector, the protector people. Yeah. So these are, you know, like a lot of endangered species, they have, um, gathered a constituency around them, right? <laughs> a fan club. A f- yeah. Fan, you know, people, people who want to do right by this vulnerable animal, you know, for whatever reason, because they love the animal, because they see it as a symbol, you know, a way to help in the larger mess of human society, whatever you want to say. And the government has mobilized these people um, to create uh, seal protection zones or exclusion zones so that when a seal hauls out on the beach, you, you know, a call goes out and you immediately get, you know, a, a half a dozen mostly white people uh, <laughs> putting, you know, yellow tape around them and stakes and protecting the seal. So you can understand that that also doesn't look so good to the people who do not like the seals, do not want the seals around is um, all the Yeah, hubbub. they'd be like, where is one of those around this island? Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. To have kept everybody yeah. out Yeah, here. and the title, the title of the piece, can you even believe this is happening, is actually comes from a, a native Hawaiian guy who I spent, you know, a couple hours with where he was basically just, you know, shouting his side of the story at me, increasingly, you know, frustrated by the whole situation and I, I say in the piece, that was kind of the look in his eyes the whole time was like, can you even believe this is happening? You know, just like complete disbelief that this government would do this. So, you know, I'm simplifying a little bit. I don't yeah. mean to generalize that like all native Hawaiians don't like whatever, but, um, no, I, but that I, was I, the let general. Me, let me come in and point out yeah, that yeah. this is a very long piece of investigative reporting collected in the book, Serious Face. And we are doing a abbreviated. Yes. Now, it's not as bad as coming on NPR and having to do it in four minutes. No, I appreciate this And then they pull version, some yeah. shit out that does the, the, you can't even remember saying and make it like the main thing you said. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, so that's the situation when I go to Kauai in 2012, early 2013. And exacerbated by the fact that the previous year, in, the, in about the six months prior, there have been four assassinations of seals um, a string of assassinations that started with one on molokai uh, which is a you know the least populated of the of the islands and then also on Kauai. can you a quick favor too yeah there's a piece there's a part of your story that you probably don't think is that important but the what were the birds that were showing up with the broken wings oh yeah newell's shearwaters so this is another the people were just like yeah. It seems like fishermen, when these birds are coming down on their oh, boats. Oh, 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 sorry. Those are pelicans. Okay. Yeah. So there were, so in the piece, I kind of do a roundup of assassinations. You know, well, I would not say those are all assassinations. I, I'd be careful about qualifying them all. Some of those I think are just, you know, people losing their shit momentarily and hurting an <laughs> animal, you know, but, um, cause there isn't necessarily the political, yeah, yeah. you know, discourse around those animals. But yeah, I mean, th- 
kind of the, the point of the piece in my mind, what was interested in me is, you know, we talk a lot about conservation. We talk a lot about bringing species back to levels approaching what they maybe once were. But we, because conservation doesn't have a lot of, you know, it, it's mostly failures. You know, when you look at the whole of the Endangered Species Act, I mean, I wouldn't say failures because it's not done, but it's not like, you know, it's very hard work. And so there's only a handful of cases where we really have these animals introduced back to levels where now they're starting to be in people's way again. I think it's sub 2% yeah. that go on the Endangered Species Act come off due to recovery. I think you're more likely to come off because they realize that they find another population they didn't know about. Right. Or you come off because you're extinct. Right. Or another little interesting wrinkle is that is you're more likely to go extinct, I believe, before you even get on the list because you're you're <laughs> held in this kind of like holding area called the uh, warranted but precluded. Oh, where and they lose them then. Yeah. Where the government says like, yeah, you're at, you know, this, this species deserves protection, but we just, we just can't right now. We're going to put you <laughs> on this category called warranted but precluded. And uh, species we, have gone we extinct. We can't because we can't afford it? We can't, you know, the I don't know if they battle, say that. Uh, whatever. You know, just saying like, we, we recognize this is worthy and we're going to get to it, but we just have to hold off on giving you the protection that it deserves right now. Um, but anyway, but yeah, so the, the upshot for me of this whole story, the thing I'd be interested in is what happens, you know, the monk seal is not a success story, but it's the fact that they're now appearing in places that they haven't appeared has been enough to raise this problem of, you know, some of these animals disappeared because we didn't want them there, right? <laughs> like people, people got mad at It was at intentional. Them. Yeah, it was intentional. Mm. And now they're coming back. And so we've never really, you know, there's, a, there's an environmental lawyer in the piece who says, you know, we put all this energy into saving wildlife and wildness, but we never really talk about how much wildness we want and how much we're willing to live with. And that's <laughs> what was happening with the monk seals. So you had this clash, right, between the, the government and the people who wanted them to rebound and then the people who were whose lived experience was being upset by their rebounding. I still want to hit the thing. I'll just do it myself. Okay, go. It was just a kind of a horrific detail. Oh, the birds. Yeah. That sorry, there was a bird that were like they would mess with fishermen. Yeah. They'd land on the boats. Pelicans. And it seems as though they were just reaching up and snapping their wing bones. Yeah. That was being what so was. So you're finding dead pelicans with two broken wings, like someone's just going, snap. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like Worse than just cutting its head off. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Do you know what I mean? It's like so, like to do that, to snap its wing bones and then be like, so long, buddy. Yeah. It's the just casualness like, of it. Oh, is, it's just, it's, it's like, disgusting. It, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's just keep a little sharp machete on board. Like, I don't know. Ugh. Yeah. There's but, all kinds of examples of like people that are like fishing for a living treating other stuff really badly. Like, I mean, in Southeast Alaska, they hate those sea otters, right? Mm, sea lions, too. Yeah. I've then, heard. And I've now, heard. In, uh, isn't in Washington, like, they're allowing the killing of a certain number of sea lions to protect salmon? Well, they've been doing that in the Columbia for a while, yeah. I think. Yeah. 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 Go on. <laughs> well, so, yeah. So, I show up, and I think I'm going to write, you know, CSI monk seal, Right. They've got four assassinations. They've got investigators looking at the evidence, quote unquote, and uh, they've got rewards, $10,000 reward for each SEAL, information about each SEAL killing. Describe how they're killed or what they know about the killings. Well, when I arrived, all I knew was um, one had been shot 
and I believe three were what they were calling blunt head trauma. And one had a spear fishing spear stuck. That happened while I was there. But survived. But survived. Yeah. And, um. That's a Hail Mary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) You can imagine that person cut the line. Yeah. Rather than reeling it in. I think that's right. Yeah. Um. That one was a juvenile, though, so it was even more adorable, you know, when mm-hmm. they put it on the evening news. Um, but yeah, so I show up, and the first thing I realize is, this is not, there's no police work when it comes to dead <laughs> seals, you know? Like, they've got, Noah has its investigators, and they're, they're trying their best, but what do you do? You know, as the, one of the cops says, it's like, you can't talk to the seals' <laughs> friends, <laughs> right? And you don't even know, you know, if it washes up somewhere, has it been killed in that spot was it killed somewhere else did the did the head trauma happen just from bouncing around on rocks after it's been you know killed in some other way or died of natural causes so i immediately realized like this is a mess you know this is not a police procedural for me to for me to follow and i start reporting on the the clash itself right and yeah but you you gotta get like how hard could the police work have been? Because you ended up talking to the guy that did it. Well, I solved Off the crime. Off the record. I solved the crime, Steve. <laughs> I solved the crime. So That's what's so yeah. funny about it. Like, yeah. you're not there that long, and here you are having coffee with yeah. the guy who's yeah. got a $10,000 reward on his head. Yeah. Did you so collect the money? I did not collect the money. And it was funny because after the piece published, uh, I got a call from the same Noah cops, you know, the investigators. Be like, who is it? Yeah. and No, I mean, he knew. His whole tone of voice was... Listen, I got to make this call. You, I know you're not going to tell me anything, but any chance you're going to tell me anything, I'm sorry, I can't tell you anything. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, basically, I had met a guy named Walter Ritty. Who, I've, I've hung out with him. You have? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a phenomenal guy. And um, I met him sort of by chance when I, was in, you know, when I first arrived in Hawaii on that trip. And he had told me that he knew the person, he called him the kid, who had killed the first monk seal, the one that had set off this you know, quote unquote, set off the string of killings and that he was, you know, very remorseful about it, yada, yada. And I kind of kept after him. And eventually I was invited to meet this guy. And by and that, this Walt, like, oh, I, I, I met him. I should say, I hung yeah. out. But anyway, he's a, oh, like not a spiritual leader, but, uh, I mean, he's a, he's an active, he's an organizer. I'd say he's an act. He's done a lot of activism against, um, you know, military, uh, testing in, mm-hmm. in Molokai against development. And he, um, he was counseling the killer. He's very revered in the community. So that when he found out that he was, he was not one of the people who was anti-monk seal. You know, he understood that the monk seals were supposed to be there, that there should be this kind of coexistence and, and actual affinity between native Hawaiians and a native Hawaiian species. And so when he found out who this, this kid was, he just went and knocked on his door and he said, I want to talk to you about the seal. And, you know, for the kid, that was a big deal for Uncle, Uncle Walter to show up at his house. And, you know, I had spent a week just talking to both sides of this debate. And everyone on both sides, you know, you just get the impression that anyone who kills a seal is going to be this kind of burly, angry Native Hawaiian fisherman who, you know, lost his shit at a seal and finally, you know, snapped and, and killed it. And, um, and that was Uncle Walter's assumption, too. And when I met the kid, what I found out was that essentially it was, was an accident. Um, I mean, that's a generous way of putting and it. And not a fisherman. Not a fisherman at all. That was the only time he'd been fishing that whole, that whole season. But he was with some friends, and it was a peer pressure situation because they were looking for a spot to fish. Every, every place they went, there was a monk seal there, and they'd been hiking and hiking and hiking. Finally, they got to this one spot, and there was a big male seal there. 
And he was kind of goaded by his friends to, you know, he thought he'd scare it away by throwing a rock at it. And according, his story, which was, you know, I ran past the NOAA investigators. They said it sounded credible based on the injuries, was that he hit this thing square in the head with a rock. It went unconscious and, and was dead. So that was, he was broken up about it. This kid was broken up about it. And he was more broken up about it when the next seal was killed and the seal after that and the seal after that because he felt, oh, I started this whole chain reaction. You know, I uncorked all this frustration mm -hmm. that's been going on and I sort of showed it a way to deal with it, right? A way to take it out on the seals. Um, and it was not, I mean, that was one of those moments. I mean, there's a lot of moments like this in the book, but that was one of those moments where I just could not believe. I mean, that to me is like the privilege of doing this work is if you can spend enough time and attention on these stories and you just keep kind of scratching layer after layer of understanding away from it until you actually get to what happened, you find the most surprising things. And that's the, this was the epitome of, for, of that for me is that I could not have invented this situation. Yeah. One of the, one of the early things that happened to me as I was like training to be a writer that made me appreciate the work of good journalism was after the murder of Matthew Shepard in Laramie, Wyoming. That it was immediately, it was that some cowboys found a gay kid and out of just pure unbridled hatred, dragged him out of a bar and killed him. Mm -hmm. And that story ran and ran and ran. And then a journalist from Harper's went and just hung out in the town and met everyone involved. And when she wrote her piece about it, it was like, that is not at all hmm. what happened. At all. No one had gotten it right. Like, the relationship between all the individuals involved, the lack of cowboyness, the it not being motivated by that, it being like financial entanglements. Yeah. I mean, I don't know and I was that. like, thank God for people that will go and just spend three weeks somewhere. Yeah. And be like, so what happened now that night? I mean, I don't know that story in particular, but th that's the phenomenon that I've encountered again. And again, it's weird because I think that we, it's interesting because I was having this conversation with someone the other day. And I think it's like, we're wired to kind of just snap everything into like a tidy story yeah. so that we can make sense of it. You know, otherwise we'd just be walking around in this like incoherent cloud of facts all the time. Having to use our brains all the time. Yeah. Yeah. You need it's things exhausting. that you can just take for granted. Right. And I think that's how we kind of walk through the world, just metabolizing everything that's happening. You know, and, the writer Joan Didion. Of course. Yeah. 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 In, her, in her book, I think it's in Slouching Towards Bethlehem. She talks about, and this is pre-internet when she wrote this. She's like, there's so much information, right? That part, like you get people where there's so much information they can't deal with it all. And they're thirsty for just something very simple. Mm -hmm. And all the better if they're the only one that knows it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I was going to say, it's, it's nice, <laughs> right? When you can repackage it and, and, and tell it farther, right? Yeah, I mean, I think people that's... People like that. Yeah, that's, I think, what I, the realization I was having talking to this other person was like, I guess that's sort of what I see myself as doing now is like, it's like jujitsuing the storytelling <laughs> instinct, you know, to unravel the stories, you know, that we, that we lock onto and then kind of see all of the parts laid out and put them back together into something a little more real, right? Um, and it's... It's when they click back into place, like with this kid on Molokai, that that I just, I mean, it 
Like it almost feels like a spiritual experience, like to mm-hmm. see like, oh my God, like the world is very, very complicated yep. and it's so much more than we understand. And what else do I walk around not appreciating the complexity of, you know? That's the thing I appreciate in all the stuff you've written. And then again, in this story is that, um, like, I know you're a wildlife advocate, a conservation advocate, right? Like you, you like to see intact healthy habitat and like a clean planet and that means a lot to you yeah um but you're able to go into a thing like this and not be like i'm gonna root these assholes out and it's horrible but you give like a very fair and and i'm not i'm not native hawaiian i don't know but you give what seems to me like a very fair recounting of how we got here yeah thank you it isn't like isn't like the whole point isn't to like make people bleed yeah and it's also not to make people have some kind of simplistic sense of hope, you know? I think both those things are pretty boring, mm-hmm. right? And um, and I think that's why I never really read a lot of, you know, quote-unquote nature writing about conservation before I started doing it myself, is it, it seemed like it was very easy to just, you get the sense of what's happening in these stories pretty quick in, in a lot of tellings of them. Oh, right? That yeah. we're, you know, thank God for the people who are, protecting the seal or, you know, against the nasty, you know, whoever it is, hunters, landowners, whatever, you know. Um, I just feel like that's really a case where you see stories snapping into those those outlines pretty quick. You know where you wouldn't do well as a writer? Where? Writing animated children's movies. No, because <laughs> you're absolutely where right. Where the bad guy, yeah. let yeah. me guess, it's the evil logging or mining consortium. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. I would not, I don't with think. A sadis- I mean, with a sadistic tinge. Yeah, know? I also, I just don't really do morals either, I think. I think the morals of the story always escape me, you know. So. John, what, what happened after? Like, how long ago did you, did you do this? Well, so I, that was about 10 years ago that I was there, and. And the story since then, it's kind of just been more of the same, honestly. The the monk seal numbers are up um, modestly. But I are think they still getting assassinated? There now were then? four killings last year, I believe. You're kidding me. And there were two this year on Molokai. And there it's was only a study. June. Wow. Yeah. And there was a study recently that, as I read it, this morning after you phoned me to tell me I better have some contemporary monk seal facts, Steve. As I read this study, it was showing that what I would call assassinations, Mm -hmm. um, intentional killings are the leading cause of monk seal deaths uh, by, well, you know, anthropogenic monk seal deaths. So more than than tanglings, more than getting hit by... Yeah, exactly. that there are now more more seals have died because they've been intentionally killed. Rather than other human causes. Yeah. yeah. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want... Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending 
and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay. It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home... Well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying? I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater. Make sure you use code MeatEater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. Uh, tell quick about that island I had never heard of and the brothers that own the island. Oh, yeah. Nihau. I'd never heard, heard of that either. Have you heard of that island, Kel? That was an interesting place. I have, yeah. Sounds like a good fishing spot. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you Despite, can put up with an old man yelling at you from the shore. Despite to... all the monk seals. Yeah. So Nihau, which I had never heard of. Um is a, it's an island. Um, I mean, it's big. It's a, you know, I th- think it's about 70 square miles and it's right across from Kauai. And uh, in 1864, uh, King Kamehameha sold the island to a ranching family, a white ranching family. Was that, it 10,000 bucks? I don't know how much it yeah. was. <laughs> yeah, it was cheap, I'm sure. And uh, and that descendants of that family still own it. It's, it's now under the control of two brothers, um, Keith and Bruce Robinson. They're both getting up there in years. And uh, it's known as the Forbidden Island because the 
Robinsons do not like to have people on there. You can, they will, they've taken a limited number of tourists there. I guess you can hunt there. Hot tip. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, it's very expensive to get there and they control the helicopter company that takes you in and out. And it's very, very difficult to access. Very, very difficult to know what's going on there. There are some native Nihauans who, or Nihau people who live on the island and have lived there for generations. There's been like... And they've been entangled with that family for a yeah. couple hundred years. I mean, as Keith Robinson put it to me, they are a feudal landlord. Those people are their tenants the he and, and their brother employees. are a feudal yes, landlord. Yes, um, It's a very bizarre situation to exist in the 21st century. Yeah, and uh, it you point out that they use it for training downed pilots in evasion. Uh, they have in the past, yeah. yeah. So they're and then the native Nihauans. They run them down. Are on the foot. ones that run you down? <laughs> yeah. In the training, and they said that they they get them pretty easy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's their that's their only extramural sport. Um, so yeah, so they you know the Robinsons have just had to find ways like that to make money. They do a lot of military. You know, they have a radar station there, I believe, on on the mountainside. And I was able for some reason. Uh, you know, which wasn't clear, which only became clear to me later. I was able to talk my way onto Nihau, uh, flew over with Keith Robinson because Nihau happens to be one of the best places for monk seals right now. The Robinsons out of a kind of like very right-wing anti-government, um, you know, wanting to stick it to the government instead of killing the seals, they've saved the seals. So their, their <laughs> conservation so program. No, it's great. It's great. Yeah. The, the rub being, they won't let the government come look at them. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. And it's like, oh, you're interested in these seals, are you? Yeah. <laughs> this and, plethora of endangered seals that we have here? Yeah. You can't thriving. count them. That's you can't thriving. count them. And the reason, I don't want you counting them. <laughs> and the reason, according to Keith, is because uh, they don't have to put up with any you know, fussy community meetings and hearings and, and stuff like that. They just tell the people living there, who are their tenants, again, their feudal tenants and employees, we're going to protect the seals. So, and, and that's they the do plan. It. And then, then they do it. Um, and so, yeah, the government's been... You know, really, I mean, I, I think they may have made a little more progress, uh, but at the time I was there, they were they were definitely just like really. I mean, they were like fascinated. What what did you see there? You know, <laughs> like I was I was, but uh, but when I got there, it also became apparent that um, the Robinsons were really upset that fishermen from Kauai were coming too close to Nihau, and they I think, as I interpreted it, and I'm you know Keith Robinson was not very happy with me after this this story because he didn't, I don't think he liked this interpretation, but he was trying to broker some deal with the, with Noah to set up a Marine preserve around his Island so that the fishermen could not come anymore. And this and was, a, was, this was like an arrow in his quiver. Yeah. He was using the seal. So he, when he took me there, he really wanted to show me how there weren't actually that many seals and they were suffering. And it was all because of these intruding fishermen from Kauai and, Eden, and to, to, you know, create this atmosphere where it's like now and even Nihau seals are, are in trouble. Yeah. That's what he, John's explaining, like in this, navigation of this the the owner is like where'd they all go this is a disaster but his driver's like seems like there's about as many as we always see <laughs> yeah. and then he just he just stormed off keep just stormed off you know it's like yeah so uh, yeah it was a wild day it was a wild day i mean keith is a very interesting character and you know when i met him he was wearing a uh you know work clothes and a, a green hard hat and he handed me a self-published book um, about the apocalypse, which had a, a painting of mushroom clouds and fires, and then a little figure in the corner wearing the same work clothes and a green hard hat. <laughs> and um, so that was like some reading material for the helicopter flight over. Um, See, I don't want this to be taken because I, I would not like nothing more than to foster a friendship with this individual. Yeah. So I don't want, if he's listening, I don't want it to take, 
Listen, I want to be friends. Okay. I want to okay. hang out on the island. You want to read I his apocalypse? Fish. I want to hunt. <laughs> yeah. I'll interview him about the book. Yeah. Anything mean John saying, I want to be really tight. Yeah. And I was very tight. <laughs> I would I would say, I mean, he's in a very untenable position, you know. So I don't think there's any right way to be Keith Robinson right now. You know, it's uh John, when you yeah. sat down in the helicopter and he thumbed open the first page of the book, did it say something along the lines of so, you're in my helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Things to know about me. Yeah, yeah. No, I do remember, though, he was, like, nagging the pilot to fly in a perfectly straight line to save money on gas. Um, you know, he's very cash poor. He owns this island, but he's he's really having some cash flow problems, it seems. So, um, but in, in all fairness, is, like, do you feel that he's legitimately interested in the ecology of the island? Oh, absolutely. He's, uh, like, one of the most successful conservationists in America right now. I mean, he's done... He's, uh, you know, bred a lot of um, endangered native plants. Oh, and the, I forgot he had that tree. Yeah, he had a, he had a one, was it the last one of the, of the native, uh, a particular native Hawaiian hardwood tree. This was in the 90s. That he kept from a seed. That he kept from a seed. And, and as I understand it, this was, this was something I could not definitively get to the bottom of, but as I understand it, and this, this is a little bit speculative, but it seems like he had misread a Fish and Wildlife Service document about, about this species. His, about his tree. That made it seem to him that they were going to come and claim his tree by eminent domain. And he just implied very strongly to me that he then uh, killed the tree rather than let the government take it because it was against his principles. And that he told them that if they were going to come take his tree, there'd be like another Ruby Ridge on Nihau. Because the headline to the thing or somewhere in it said something about like the containment and... I believe it was like support and protect the, yeah. the tree. And then in the bottom, it was like, we really need to work with this guy yeah, to and keep his tree happy. Yeah. And he would not be very specific about the story, although he wanted to tell me that story many times. But he but, told you three days later, the tree was dead. Yeah. Yeah. So that was his... That, that's why I said strongly implied. <laughs> strongly implied that he he... he Killed that tree rather than let the government take it. I'd love to get this guy on the show, Corinne. Okay. Well, don't tell him you know how. me. The helicopter well, pilot better find out a straight-ass way to yeah. fly all the way over to here, man. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> but tell him we'll find a very efficient means of travel. Okay. You ready to move on to the macaques? Oh, hold on. You got oh, yeah. to cover just because it is the cutest thing. <laughs> Monk seals with eels coming out of their noses. <laughs> It's so sad. That's not in the article. Look, what is that? No, about? Look. That's what, yeah. We just found this that. in yeah. the Guardian. This is like big slimy booger. You didn't see this yeah. hat. This is a frequent thing. But if oh, it's man, like, that's what Job of the Hut was up. created <laughs> off of, man. Wow. So the theory that's is that's a problem they have eating the Apparently. seals, and then like a spaghetti noodle when you're kid tells one of those funny jokes. Oh, the seals eat the seals eating the eel. Yeah. And then, like a loogie, you know, they'd hack up the seal or the eel through their little seal. It's hard to nose. tell stories about seals. Seals and eels. And eels. Yeah. yeah, it is. That's that's your first kids book, John. Yeah, seals and eels. <laughs> Which ones are the bad guys? <laughs> exactly. And then at the end, you can be like, "You tell me." Yeah. They both kind of have a point. Yeah, you're like, I don't want to pass judgment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pixar is not going to pick that one up. No. Uh, well, uh, sorry. Anyways, no, is we, it alive when it comes out? No. 
Oh, so he's got a dead eel hanging out of his nose. Yeah, and people, these these folks that protect the seals get very concerned over the well-being of the seal. And uh, I, I think maybe one of one has died from Ugh. some blockage and stuff, I think. Yeah. It, it's been a few years since I researched that one, but... Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, I mean, it's not just killing, you know, like we were talking before, they've, they've got a toxoplasmosis threat from feral cat species that they think are affecting the seals now. We've covered that yeah. very heavily on this show. The seals. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How does that? Because all he's got to do is get out there and that, when he's, because cats like shitting in the, the sand, sand and there he is out in the yeah. sand. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's a great point to bring up, right? It's like, we always protect animals on our terms, then they're living this entire other life, in this case, in the ocean, which is a giant place that is full of dangers that they have to conquer on their own. And it's, you know, then they show up and they got an eel dangling out of their nose and people are like, well, that's not part of the plan. Mm -hmm. He's like, listen, but you know what my main problem is? This eel (laughs) hanging out of my nose. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. If you want to help me, let me tell you. Yanked this son of a bitch out of my nose. Kills me. You ready for macaques? Sure. Which what was I calling them this morning? Macaws, and I had you all confused. Yeah, I thought you were talking about. Did you birds. guys know that little monkey is called a macaque? No, I thought it was a macaw. That's a bird. That's, That's a, a bird. macaque. Yeah, no, and it's also apparently a tribe. Yeah. <laughs> is it macaque or macaque? Macaque. <laughs> yeah. Depends yeah. if you ask Chester. Yeah. Yeah, macaque. macaque. It sounds it sounds wrong, right? It sounds like macaque, macaque would be a little more right, civilized, right, right, but right, no, right. it's M A. Who's looking at it? C A C A Q U E. Yeah, macaque. <laughs> <laughs> All right, tell that story. Where do you want to start? You don't need to go back fifteen hundred years. Fifteen hundred years ago, a monk. No. They were not in Florida. <laughs> they were not in Florida. I mean, we can go back a hundred years. That's a good starting point. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Picture it. Florida, 1930. 1930. I see a, a Ferris wheel. Yeah, well, and, uh, a, close. Lot, a lot more fish. It was a land of amusements. <laughs> a land, a vacation land already. And a New Yorker named Colonel Tui, Colonel being his first name, not a rank, started a um, That's a, a tourist attraction. name. It is. It's pretty badass. Colonel. Should name why, my dog. We want to name him. Why not name your kid General? He's got to earn it. Admiral. <laughs> Start, he starts at Colonel. See how he does. Um, yeah. How does he get? Yeah. How does he get advancement? Yeah. Maybe he started as private. He was, was born private. It was spelled C O L, not K R K E R. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, spelled like sure. yeah, like uh, like uh, popcorn Colonel. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, not. Yeah. Sorry. Not like the popcorn Colonel. Like the military Colonel. Yeah. So Mr. Colonel Tui had some kind of tourist attraction going in the middle of Florida in a uh, town called Ocala on the Silver River. And he decided he wanted to up his uh, game a a notch and he brought over six macaques from somewhere, I don't know where, and decided he was going to put them on a little island in the river and you'd get to be able to see monkeys when you came to visit his place. He did not realize that macaques are tremendous swimmers. This is my favorite detail of the story. Within minutes, apparently, (laughs) (laughs) by some accounts, they were off the island. (laughs) 
Um, uh, so that was monkeys. that was in the 30s. <laughs> that was great. Uh, you turn them loose, and all of a sudden they just they just walk like uh, swim. Shit, there they go. You'd like to imagine him kind of standing there, you know, feeling very proud, just gazing out at his little monkey island, and then <laughs> sort of dawning on him. Um, Tell the, some kid, okay, now go feed the monkeys, and they're like, which ones? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I just imagine he's still standing there, just they're just splashing toward him. It's like Normandy, you know. Um, but yeah, and then but so then you've got wild monkeys in Florida. <laughs> And by uh, the 80s, there were um, about 400 of them. On each in, in side of the river. separate troops. Yeah, on separate 400. troops. I mean, I'm going to preface all this by saying the, the, the census, the monkey censuses in Florida are very fuzzy. So Several we, recounts. We never have, right, a lot of hanging chads. Um, <laughs> we never really have very good information, it seems, about how many monkeys there are in Florida at any given time. Uh, but, it, you know, there's wild monkeys living in Florida, something I did not know. So pause that story. In 2012, the summer of 2012, I went to Tampa to um, look for the mystery monkey of Tampa Bay, which was a, a macaque that had first appeared behind a Bennigan's um, <laughs> in 2009, I believe. A hundred miles away from the source. Very far away. Yeah, yeah. This is way out, you know, Tampa. It's like way out on the coast. Um, so it's crossed the whole interior of the state. <laughs> and the theory was when they called out um, a gentleman named Vernon Yates, who's a renowned freelance animal trapper in Florida, to come corral this monkey behind the Bennigans, he was floored. He could not believe that this thing was, as he put it, very streetwise. <laughs> because when a pet macaque, um, of which there apparently are many uh, licensed pet macaques in Florida, when they escape, they tend to just fry themselves immediately on a power line or get hit in traffic or something. But this thing... This thing could boogie. This thing could get through. It could read your mind. <laughs> yeah. It was. Uh, it had a kind of a ninja-like nimbleness that was evading uh, both Vernon and the uh, Fish and Wildlife Commission officers who were sent out to trap yeah, it. Yeah, and he he darted it like multiple times. <laughs> and it'd get right? away before it fell asleep. Right. And he'd like look at you and pull out the dart. Exactly. And be like, oh, yeah. Fuck exactly. You and the run. line where he looks him in the eye and like pulls the dart out. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Five yeah. Fell him out. Oh, yeah. that, that detail. We, we work with. They, we used to work a lot with a guy named Mo, and he was a cameraman, and he described being in the jungle in South America, and he's with some guys. This wasn't working with us, but working with someone else. He's with some guys that were blowgun hunters. They were in Colombia, and they're blowgun hunters. And he said one of these guys was this monkey up in a tree. He said it's kind of the most disturbing thing you ever seen in his life. And these guys is like, <laughs> with that blowgun, and that dart hits that monkey in the back. He said that monkey reaches around behind his back and pulls the dart out. Yeah. He said, just not what you expect, like, a game animal to do. Right, right. <laughs> well, they don't have opposable yeah, thumbs. No, he said, it just yeah. seemed like, just at that moment, he's like, everything was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My other favorite detail was apparently there was a moment, because this was, this Bennigan's pursuit was just the first of many, right? So I think Vernon, by the time I saw Vernon in 2012, and this had been going on for three and a half years, and he uh, said he had more than 100 occasions he had gone out after this monkey. On one of them, there was a fish and wildlife officer. <laughs> the same monkey. The same he monkey. He hadn't caught it in three years. He hadn't caught it in three and a half years. And uh, he was, you know, I went to his house and he, 
he uh, took a map of Florida out to show me kind of where the, the monkey's travels had taken him. And he just kept having to flip the map over, like bring out a different map at a bigger scale. He just kept getting more and more elaborate, you know. Um, and he was sure that it was the same monkey. Like it was he, marked somehow. He, they were, well, they were very sure it was the same monkey just by its behavior, I think. And that's a, I guess that's an open question, but there did seem to be consensus. He, at this he point. Cro- right. across a very eye. long causeway, probably in the back of a truck. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it started. It was in different neighborhoods. It was eating fruit off people's roofs. Um, it was getting around. Wow. And uh, and what happened again in a in a similar and yet extremely different. Oh, we should add. He's about twenty five pounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's a little guy. He's pretty adorable. I think he uh, and he became known as the mystery monkey of Tampa Bay. And in the <laughs> same way as this monk seal story unfolded, but in a very different version of it, a there was a political dynamic <laughs> around the mystery monkey. In that here you had um, Vernon Yates, who was sort of caricatured as this, you know, dopey small town sheriff, animal trapper guy uh, out to, you know, trap this innocent creature. And the state, you know, the power of the state clamping down on the the animal. It's Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. And the populace wanted the monkey to be free. You know, they, they were T-shirts, stay free, mystery monkey. There were billboards, um, you know, social media accounts. And it became, again, another intractable kind of, um, you know, disagreement about what this monkey was all about and what we, what we should do with it, right? You know, you had the state saying it's a danger to people. It's probably um, suffering itself because they're communal animals, they're social animals, and this one's been, you know, outside of its troop. And they have hepatitis? Is that what they have? They all have herpes. Oh, okay. Uh, not all. A lot of them have herpes B, I believe, which is, was used as a as kind of scare tactic, as I see it by the the state to say this is another reason we have to get this monkey although when you kind of dig into the science because everybody will make love with the monkey and wind up yeah you know yeah people love (laughs) and the the monkeys with herpes are definitely telling the monkeys without herpes that hey everybody's (laughs) got it yeah (laughs) you know it's tangled yeah um so yeah so so uh (laughs) so i was and i was there um right before the republican convention you know, in 2012, this was the Romney. So freedom was in the air. Freedom was in the air. The Tea Party was ascendant. Um, there was a lot of, you know, in a way, the monkey debate really mirrored the American debate of like, you know, what is the line between tyranny and lawlessness? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what is the government for? And, um, you know, shouldn't we all just be free? And uh, it was fascinating. It was fascinating. I mean, the characters involved were fascinating. This guy, Vernon, shown, you know, he had like 17 tigers at his house and uh, a big pile of alligators in a concrete pool. And, uh, and again, in, in just as I solved that monk seal, <laughs> monk seal crime, I managed to find the monkey um, living very happily in someone's backyard. They had sort of reached a, a kind of detente with the monkey and were letting it hang around their property. Um, it was actually through some, a reporter from the Tampa Bay times had, had, um, had found this out. And I knew, uh, another source who had been working with the family to kind of take care of the monkey and keep the monkey, you know, close and, and well cared for, but also not bring it too close. You know, they weren't bringing it to their house or anything like that. It seemed to be working out in a weird way. It was a weird kind of compromise happening between the monkey's rights and the humans uh, need to keep the monkey a monkey. Did you ever get Vernon's like personal opinion 
on whether or not the monkey should be caught? Like, oh, aside from yeah. the fact that it's his job. He absolutely thought the monkey should be caught. He thought, I mean, like a, like this, like the wildlife officers, imagine your job is to keep wildlife healthy and keep people safe from wildlife. And now you've got a monkey running around and everyone's more concerned about the monkey's rights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Vernon was, was adamant that, um, you know, he was doing this for the monkey that the monkey needed to be captured. And we can jump ahead because the, you know, some stuff happened after I, I did this story, but that it was in the monkey's best interest to be brought into captivity where it could be with other monkeys of its kind and live out its life there. It was safer for the monkey and it was safer for, for people. Was there any talk about putting the monkey back on the river? No, because that's a, uh, I don't know that this is why, but the monkeys on the river themselves have been a huge source of controversy and aggravation because at different times the state has tried to um, trap that population and extinguish that population. Which doesn't go over well. Which does not go over well with people who like adorable anthropomorphized monkeys. Um, so there was, I don't think there was any um, sense that they were going to like relocate uh, the mystery monkey. Everyone knows about the non-native situation in Florida, but very few people know about the non-native monkeys in Florida. Yeah, I had no idea. And there's other, there's another monkey population. Apparently, there's a vervet monkey that's population heard, yeah. by the Fort Lauderdale. But I only just recently heard that. Yeah, that's been there for as long as I was interested in monkeys in Florida. <laughs> popular, popular uprisings around monkeys in Florida. I did, guess, they ever, did they ever get them? Oh, sorry, Cal. Oh, I, I guess I was just wondering about Vernon's opinion too, because in his role, right, he's got a pool full of alligators, he's got tigers, he knows that so much of that exists in the state of Florida. It just crossed my mind that he could possibly have an opinion of like, I'm glad I'm getting paid to go try to capture the monkey, but does it matter? No. He, does it matter because... There's already so many because, messed up situations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, he. The reason why he has those animals is that those are animals that have that he has offered to rehome from licensed or unlicensed yeah. owners in the state of Florida who did not, you know, who were not keeping their animals humanely. He complained to John about losing a hundred thousand dollars worth of tortoises in a divorce settlement. That's right. <laughs> Came after my yeah. turtles. Yeah, he loves tortoises. Was his sweet spot. I think he had a special special place in his heart for tortoises. Um, yeah, one of his five divorces, he got cleaned out of his tortoises. So, so the mystery monkey settled down and found a wife. Lived, lived his life. Well, and... that was where my story. That was where my story ended. And then a few months later, um, the monkey was. Uh, you know, everything was still peaceable at the, at the house and. Then the monkey jumped on the woman, the, the homeowner's back, and startled her. Classic monkey on your back. <laughs> yep. <man>. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And that, you know, startled her. She reacted. That freaked out the monkey, and the monkey bit her on the shoulder. And then it was game over. So at that point, the monkey had to be caught to be, I guess, tested in the same way, you know, you get bit by a stray dog or something. I don't know the ins and outs of it. And it involves for, decapitation often. Well, this monkey was not decapitated okay. or beheaded. <laughs> um, so Vernon came back in with this the state wildlife Vernon's agency. back on the scene Ver, now? Vernon was probably the first call. I mean, you're not going <laughs> to, at the time he had sunk into this, do you think they're going to give it to someone else? And this time they were able to get him. They trapped the monkey, who was then named 
Cornelius after the monkey and Planet of the Apes, which I think I could take a little bit of credit for because there's a part in the piece where I sort of have this delusional fever dream while I'm reading Planet of the Apes at a La Quinta Inn in Ocala. <laughs> but uh, they named him uh, they named him Cornelius. They brought him to a kind of like a roadside attraction type zoo thing what? where he was paired with another monkey named Cora, settled down. He had children, seemed to be living a happy life. Until a he few years ago, no. <laughs> <laughs> he developed a nasty yeah. habit. They had given him a cyanide pill to keep in his cheek, and when it, um, no, until a few years ago, I guess that that facility where he was had come under fire from PETA and some other organizations, and they started. Um, they had a, a dozen or more tigers at this place, and there were some complaints, and they started offloading their tigers driving them out to Oklahoma to the the guy in that Netflix show. Whoa. No. Yeah. And somehow... Cornelius got tangled up with a Tiger King? Well, that's where the story... So there was a, a follow-up report in the Tampa Bay <laughs> no. Times Throw last that year. monkey in, oh, no. too. Trying to figure this out. And it seems like in the confusion over all of this, Cornelius, the, the, the trail on Cornelius went cold. We don't know where he is and where he wound up. And uh, there's really no paper trail or anything. No. Yeah. Are you going yeah. back down? I mean, I think it's been it's been covered to death, but I'm curious. I'm, I'd like to know where he is. But if the but. trail's cold, then it's obviously just right for John Wow. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if I can crack that one. But, uh, CSI. Yeah. But Dude, it uh, took you, out, well, you You found the monk seal assassin yeah. in days. You'll yeah. find that monkey. I feel like a, it's like a lethal weapon. Like, I'm getting too old for this. <laughs> one, last, one last time. I um, think it's hilarious yeah. how you, you're staying at a La Quinta, too, you know, because their claim to fame is... They're always pet friendly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's no chance you have that monkey. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> not, not going to say either way. Then we're getting into yeah. then we're getting into Netflix documentary territory. Yeah. If it turns out that you have the that'd monkey. be pretty wild. Yeah, there's a whole dome over his fence too. <laughs> Steve, would you turn about. your friend in or not? No, for a reward. Yeah, no, I turn yeah. him in for a good. Well, story. but that's actually the weird thing is that the monkey is not. The reason why we don't know where the monkey is is because there's really no regulation that would require uh, them to say where the monkey is. There, as this, there was a uh, quote in this Tampa Bay Times follow-up where the the someone from the state was basically just like, "It's just like a TV. You don't have to tell us when you sell your TV to someone, <laughs> right?" <laughs> so that person who has the monkey should theoretically have papers for the monkey, but there's no database where you can look up who has what monkey. So they're just property. Mm-hmm. Um, in my Buffalo book, I, I wrote about, uh, you know, the Buffalo from the Buffalo head nickel, mm -hmm. not long after the artist, um, did his sculpture, which became the Buffalo head nickel. That Buffalo's name is black diamond. He was sold, um, in the meatpacking district in Manhattan and butchered and, um, yielded an incredible 1100 pounds of boneless meat. The guy that owned the meat packer was a guy named Sills, I think was his last name, S-I-L-Z, got it stuffed. So he, for years, had Black Diamond's head stuffed from the Buffalo Head Nickel. He sold it, right? Now, someone, uh, it's speculated that someone has that stuffed head and doesn't know what it is. Hmm. Because no one's ever come forward to be like, oh, I have Black Diamond's head. 
So unless it like got lost in the house fire or whatever, it like like someone's like, oh, I don't know where it's just the thing I got from my grandpa. Yeah, there should be some way like you could get an alert on your phone, like an Amber alert. And it would just be like, do you have a buffalo head? Can you send a picture of it to this account? You know, if yeah. we just did it, it would just take like 30 seconds. large buffalo head yeah. that looks like the buffalo head nickel. Yeah. Yeah, we could crack this in 30 seconds if we had the, a will to do it. Uh, so working on next, I know you can't really say, not, not that you're working on like a murder mystery, but you don't want to talk about it because you're waiting on some permissions. Yeah. And, but what, what yeah. can you tell us? Can you say what it involves without saying where it involves it? Because uh, this is my favorite subject. Yeah, well, we've talked about Neanderthals before, right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, so I got really, after I did a story about Neanderthals, I got, you know, just kind of reawakened to how cool deep time is, right? Mm-hmm. That there were, there were people so long ago. So, yes, yeah, so I've been really interested in writing about uh, Paleolithic cave art. And I've been trying to find a way to do it. Um, what I didn't understand is that these caves are like, um, the people who study these caves, it's very proprietary, so like it's, you know, this person will, they're the person for that cave, mm-hmm. you know, and then yeah, kind of, if you're a up and coming researcher, you have to wait until that person retires or. To get your hands to, on a cave. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're sort of like Supreme Court appointments or something. Um, <laughs> so yeah. So I've been talking to a lot of people, you know, all spring about trying to, trying to talk my way into a, into a cave because I think it's, um, I think there was this feeling in the past that the people studying cave art were, were trying to over-interpret what they were seeing, you mm-hmm. know? So they would, everything had to have like the biggest, meatiest possible explanation. Like, you know, we see X on a cave wall and therefore it means this about yeah, this like society. Yeah, like this is a testament to the extinctions. Yeah, right? well, they were, uh, you know, they revered the elk because here's a, you know, and I think that that's, that's kind of, that approach is, in my mind, from what I've learned, is it's kind of being deflated a little bit okay and people are studying more like the material culture of it like how was this actually made what do we know about the moment that it was made and things like that there, there was a lot of comments as that you <clears throat> kind of down like the religious spiritual side of things too like the people who painted were very special right and right. then um because they, yeah because they had to be there's no way it was there's no, there's no way it was like 14 15 year old kids dicking around in a cave but and, <laughs> and, it, and it was predominantly male also oh. but they did some i think fingerprint analysis mm-hmm. something something pretty cool and there's a lot of surprisingly a lot of small children and oh, females yeah, yeah. too yeah, it wasn't so just like, shamans. Get out of my way and go paint yeah. on the wall. Right. You're, <laughs> yeah. you're telling me kids drew stuff on walls? Yeah. Well, yeah. And that one thing that I didn't realize either is like so many of these sites, because, you know, you see, I've never been in any of these caves, but you see, you know, the photographs of the walls. What I didn't realize is that a lot of these places were the biggest, they call them galleries, where the biggest galleries were, are actually like really deep inside caves. Mm-hmm. So that you like, you know, or they're through narrow passages, like they're very purposeful places that you had to try to get to, you know, they didn't just walk in the cave and start drawing. Yep. And so that suggests like something. little crawls, like crawl spaces yeah, and you get yeah. crime and under stuff and around it. And yeah. exactly. So they were very specific about where they wanted to do this. I don't know what that means, but that just seemed like an interesting fact. I mean, I think that, that once points you, to little people like children going in there and doing it. Yeah. That's actually an interesting thought. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, you've no doubt seen Herzog's movie about oh, cave yeah. paintings. Yeah. So I'm a big Herzog fan. Me too. Werner Herzog. I was deeply disappointed with that movie. I went to see that movie with another writer 
um, who's been on this podcast. I, I would almost regard you guys as peers and contemporaries, Ben Wallace. Oh, yeah. Um, I went to see it with him, and we left, and I said, I don't know how you could make a bad movie about cave paintings. And he said, I was just wondering myself the exact opposite. <laughs> <laughs> what didn't you like? What didn't you like about it? I love that movie. It was too, it was too, it was too like it, it made it all ethereal. Mm. It was too like, what were they dreaming? Mm. This must be their dreams. And you're kind of like, just what was it? Like, what was it made out of? What do we think it was? Like, stop, stop this nonsense about that these are like shamans capturing their dreams. Yeah. I can see that. I mean, they did have just that too, whole thing like, about It was just the... so overblown. You got guys like dressed up like they're from a long time ago. Yeah. Like you got like role play. What do they call them people? Yeah. LARPs. LARPs. <laughs> LARPs. 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 There's like yeah. LARPers in it. Yeah. Live action role players of like cave like people. Nasty. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that. I don't think you want to alienate the LARPing audience. No, they were, no he already yeah, he's, he's done, done that. Long Listen, time I'm ago. a huge Herzog that, fan. That, the... that little Dieter needs to fly. He's got some masterpieces. Yeah. Grizzly Man. Yeah. He's got a novel out now. I didn't know that. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it just came out. And then he made um what's that one? Little Dieter needs to fly. Then he made a fictionalized version with Christian Bale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I met him. Rescue once. Dawn. I met him once at a, in the, we were trapped in the, the green room of an ideas festival in Mexico together. They wouldn't let us out for oh, a few hours. That's cool. And uh, <laughs> there were a bunch of us, and I slowly kind of made my way over to Werner Herzog to. Did you guys shoot the shit? A little bit. He was telling me, this was right before, he was making that documentary about volcanoes. And he kept, he just wanted to talk about volcanoes oh, all the good. time. And that felt like the perfect way to meet Werner Herzog. Yeah, he's like a method actor, but a. Uh, yeah, performance artist. <laughs> yeah, um, he, uh, you know, he wrote, he made that crazy ass when he do, used to do fictional films, not used to, but focused on. He did Fitzcarraldo. Yeah, and it's about a, like a deranged robber, rubber baron, who the movie is that a guy does the impossible. He like built, he moves his boat from one drainage in the Amazon to the other, which involves like hoisting it up and over a ridge and down in another valley. So you'd think like today you'd be like, oh, we'll just make a thing like CGI, whatever. But he did the insane thing. He like did exactly that. They took a boat and moved it. People like died on the production. And they made a movie about the movie called Burden of Dreams. And in Burden of Dreams, Herzog's losing his mind over that he can't get his movie finished, which he did eventually finish. And he's going off about how much he hates the jungle. And Herzog says, birds don't sing. They scream in agony. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Tell everybody your other books. We didn't really, did we do a show about about This Is Chance? Mm -hmm. I think so. Like we focused on that specifically? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so John Moo Alum, like Moo, like a cow, Alum, not like Alan. John, M-O-O-A-L-L-E-M, no H in the John, new book is Serious Face, author of This Is Chance, author of, what was the candid, not the creatures? Wild Ones. Wild Ones. Yeah. More about, all about animals. All about animals. Well, people. People. <laughs> all about people going yeah. wacky about animals. That's exactly right. Um, am I missing books? No, that's it. 
This is Chance was about the biggest earthquake to ever strike. 64. In America. Alaska earthquake. Yep. Good Friday earthquake. Yep. yep. Focuses on, a, f- narrows in on a woman who became very influential in the chaos. Yeah. A radio- and translating and providing news as, this, as the catastrophe unfolded. That's right. A radio reporter named Jeannie Chance who kind of was in the right place at the right time and spent all of that weekend on the air pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. As just chaos. As just being one source of like concrete information in a situation that did not seem to have much certainty at all. And stay tuned for his thing on cave paintings, which I promise you will be good. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, John. Thanks. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. I've used that sport dog collar in different temperatures. It just doesn't stop working. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more.